Thanks for leading us this morning, Adam. I uh, realized I don't think I've paused this week once to like count my breaths slowly, so that was, uh, that was helpful. Um, hey, we're in a nine-part series on the story and the life of David, um, and this is week eight. So we're in the home stretch. Uh, if you happen to be visiting um, or this is your first time this morning, uh, my name's Norton. Um, don't worry, um, you are kind of coming in at the end of the story. You can always go back and listen to messages. Um, all of our messages are online. Um, you can go back and read for yourself. The story of David is one of the most exciting, and uh, it's really the longest narrative of one person in the entire Old Testament. And so there's a ton of stories about David's life, and we've actually skipped quite a few because if we read and talked about and did a, a sermon on every single story from David's life, this would be like a 35-week series, um, and you would get really tired uh, of that after a while. So go back and read some of those stories um, and, uh, and yet, as we come to sort of the last couple of weeks, this is a good time. The story we're going to look at today, it's a good time to pause. Um, because one of the dangers of studying David's life is to just focus on the good about David. Uh, and there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good. Um, you think about his incredible courage with Goliath, like the most famous story about David's life. Uh, You think about his patience when he was in the wilderness and Saul was chasing him and how many years he was patient and he just waited uh, for God to reveal what was going on. You think about his passion to worship God, right? You see that. We saw that in one of the stories we read where David was dancing when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. You see that in so many of the Psalms, if you ever uh, read those. Uh, And then, of course, you could see this part of his character where David could be really kind and gracious towards others. We saw that last week in the kindness and the graciousness he showed uh, towards Mephibosheth. Um, So there's a lot of good about David, uh, but there's also some bad. Uh, Here's a few things. David's close relationships are often dysfunctional. He has a hard time knowing how to relate to people close to him, especially his family, and we'll, we'll see that particularly next week. Uh, David's a violent warrior. I mean, there's times where he clearly goes overboard. One time he threatens a man and his entire family just for insulting him. He kills a lot of people in battle. So much so that when he gets to the end of his life, God basically says, you're really violent. You you overdid it. You've got a lot of blood on your hands. Um, David has a lot of wives and concubines that he sleeps with. Uh, Some of that is for political reasons, and while it was somewhat accepted in the ancient world for kings to to practice polygamy, it wasn't as common as we think. Uh, Having multiple wives and concubines was not the way the Hebrew uh, writings and scriptures described what marriage should look like in someone's life. Um, It shows David has this weakness with Women with lust. He has a lack of self-control. And in fact, the law of Moses even warns about that at one point. It says that leaders themselves are held to pretty high standards. And if leaders in that culture, patriarchy, if men leaders have a lot of wives and concubines, it's just going to spell trouble for them. Finally, uh, David often needed to be in control. He just, because of this charisma and this position of power that he achieves and gets to, he 
gets used to getting whatever he wants. Now, uh, the encouraging thing about these two lists is that we're all a bit like David, right? We all have some good and we all have some bad. Now, our lists would be different and none of us would be very excited to put lists on the screen in front of everyone, spelling out the good things and the bad things about us. And I think we would all hope that the good list is a little bit longer and we lean into that one a little bit more often than we do the bad list. And yet all of us would admit we're a mixture of strengths and weaknesses, of positive character traits that sometimes shine forth, but also some deep flaws that sometimes get the best of us. But uh, there's the good, there's the bad, and then there's also the ugly. The ugly is what pops up from time to time in our lives when the bad goes unchecked, when we ignore the bad. We avoid the bad. Well, maybe even when we pretend we don't really have the bad. And for David, we're going to see that today in a story that most of us have heard of. It's a story that's nearly as famous as his story with Goliath. So we're going to read through this story together. Um, note, there are some PG-13 parts to this story, but we'll just be honest about those. Uh, I'll make some comments along the way. And then I want to offer some thoughts to help us see why this story actually is way more relevant to us and to our lives than we often think. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, David is at the height of his power as king. Uh, he's won some significant battles over his enemies. He founded a new capital in Jerusalem. He showed kindness to some of his former enemies. He's thriving. Everything seems to be going David's way. And this is what it says, the beginning of the chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent... And the word there, there's a Hebrew word, it's shalak. It means to send, and it actually shows up a lot in this story. So I'm just going to highlight every time it shows up, and then we'll come back later, and I'll tell you why that's important. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So it's the springtime. This is when military campaigns always start up again. And the narrator tells us in a very not so subtle way, this is when kings go out to lead their armies. This is when kings lead their warriors in battle. And David, sure enough, sends his army out. He sends his best men out, but he does not go with them. He stays in Jerusalem. He's not doing what kings normally do. And there's almost this implication, right? Bad things happen when you don't do what you're supposed to be doing. We read on, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now that might sound a bit strange to us. Why is she taking a bath on the roof? But back then, um, houses did not have indoor plumbing. They didn't have bathrooms or showers or, or baths the way we do. Uh, probably one of the most private places you could go in your house to get away from everyone else would be up on the roof. And so oftentimes they would have tubs up there that they would fill with water. And David's palace would have been on the highest hill in the city, sort of overlooking the city. So he goes out on his roof. And he sees this woman 
bathing. It continues, the woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, uh, this is significant because Uriah is one of David's elite troops. David has uh, all of his troops, and then he has sort of his Delta Force, or his Green Berets, or his Navy Seals, his elite guard, and Uriah is one of those. These would have been his most trusted warriors. And in fact, Uriah is not even an Israelite. He's a Hittite. So David must have earned his trust in some way, and Uriah must have earned David's trust. And so David would have been somewhat close to Uriah, and he sees this woman... He tells a servant, he maybe doesn't recognize who she is. He tells a servant, go find out who she is. The servant says, it's Uriah's wife. We don't know if David has met her before. It's probable that maybe he is because he would have been close to Uriah. But in that moment, David's weakness gets the best of him. His weakness with women and lust and his weakness with getting what he wants. So look at what happens. Most of us know this part. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. Now this parenthetical sentence is actually a really important detail. Now we're told the reason she's bathing. She was actually following the law of Moses, which prescribed that a woman was supposed to take a purifying bath once a month, a very specific number of days after her monthly cycle, which would have been, if David remembered his fifth grade health and wellness class, would have been the exact time that her reproductive system would have been most productive. So just to summarize with the key verbs, uh, David saw, David sent, David inquired, David sent, they got, he slept with, she went home. Now, what do you think David was thinking later that night? He just slept with a woman who's not his wife, who's actually married to one of his best soldiers. I guess it's possible it didn't bother him at all. I have to assume it did. I mean, don't you think David felt bad? Don't you think David felt horrible? Don't you think he realized how bad this was? Now, it's pretty clear from the rest of the story, he doesn't actually care about Bathsheba. We hear her name once, and in the rest of the story, she's just referred to as that woman. She's pretty much just a possession to him. He treats her like an object. But Uriah is one of his best men. Uriah is out fighting battles for him. And here's David sleeping with his wife. So I'm kind of guessing David felt bad. I'm guessing David felt guilty. I'm guessing that night maybe David said to God, God, that was really stupid. God, that was, you know my weakness, God. You know, sometimes I just get these urges and I can't control them and it happened again. I screwed up again. I am so sorry. I'll try not to let it happen again. And we've all been there, right? 
We've all done something stupid. We've all made a mistake, right? Where you give into a temptation, you're caught in a moment of weakness and you do something and you realize afterwards or maybe even while you're doing it, you realize like, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it, but you do it anyways and it's horrible and you promise to yourself and then you promise to God that was terrible. I'm so sorry. I won't ever let it happen again. That's probably what David did. Until he gets a text a few weeks later. Here's what it says. The woman conceived and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now this is going to be a problem, right? This is going to be a dilemma. What will David do? Abortion did not seem to be um, a possibility in that culture. So that wasn't an option for David. Uh, David finds himself in this dilemma where now there are consequences he's going to have to deal with. Consequences for what he's done, right? And, and we know what that's like too. We've all done those things where we thought it was just a thing and we're sorry and we wish we hadn't have done it and it's no big deal. And then there are actual consequences. And when you start to see those consequences bubbling up for something you've done, you basically have two choices. You can either confess and come clean about what you've done, or you can conceal it. You can try to control the damage, control what happened, right? And maybe you've gotten caught in a lie before, right? Where, where you sort of get caught and then some people realize and something doesn't add up in the story. And, and you kind of have two options at that point. You can either confess and come clean like, oh, yeah, this is embarrassing, but I have to admit, I lied. Like I just, when I get scared, I lie or I just have this bad or I just didn't know what you would think. And so I lie. And so I just said, you can confess and you can come clean or you can conceal it. No, I didn't say that. No. It must be his fault. Must be, did you ask? Like, you can conceal it. Try to cover it up. Try to control the damage. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe you've done something stupid. Maybe you've made a bad choice. Maybe you, you dropped the ball on something you said you would do. Maybe you did something you said you would never do. Maybe you broke a promise to someone else. Maybe you hurt somebody else unintentionally. Maybe you hurt someone else very intentionally. Right? But when you start to feel the consequences of something you've done, you pretty much have these two options. You can confess and come clean about it. Or you can conceal and control. And that's the situation David finds himself in. Bathsheba's pregnant. Her husband's eventually going to come home. He's going to figure it out. Other people are going to figure it out. Palace guards might start talking, right? He's going to have to do something about this. And if David even considered this first option, I can confess and come clean. Apparently he decided I can never do that. Like I, nobody can ever find out. Uriah can never find out. My people can never find out. I'll lose my reputation. People will talk about me. Maybe this will threaten my kingdom. I've betrayed one of my best men, right? This is going to destroy everything I've built. And it's almost as if David comes to the conclusion, there is no way I can let anyone else find out. And so David makes the mistake that you and I make all the time, right? 
He believed his best option was to just keep trying to cover it up, to conceal, to control. And he's David, right? He's, he's pretty good at this. He has a lot of power. He's clever. He's smart. He's crafty. He's the king. Give me a little bit of time and I will figure out a way out of this. So he comes up with a plan. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. You see, David thinks, if I can just bring Uriah back home from the battlefield, if I can get him to go back to his house and see his wife and sleep with her, then nine months, eight months, no one will really do the math later, right? He'll think the child is his, problem will be solved, everything is taken care of. But Uriah doesn't cooperate. Good what it says next. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. And so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Story continues. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go, go, go to my house to eat and to drink and to make love to my wife as surely as you live? I will not do such a thing. You see, Uriah is basically saying to David, like, I can't enjoy all those things. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be right. Like, our men are still fighting on the front lines. And Uriah has all of this integrity and this character. And so David has to move to plan B. Verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem the day, that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So second option, I'll just get him drunk, right? He gets him drunk, but plan B doesn't work either. And there's this huge contrast in the story between Uriah and David. It's like Uriah is the most noble person, and he's doing everything that good character would do. He has all of this integrity, and David is just sinking lower and lower and lower and showing how despicable he can be. But it doesn't work. Uriah gets drunk, and he still won't go home. So David moves to plan C. Next verse. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is the fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So last resort for David. He thinks, look, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure nobody finds out. If I have to kill Uriah, I'll do it. And you can see this, right? You can see how low David has sunk. You can see how terrible it is, how much he's scrambling just to make sure no one finds out so much so that he will murder someone else, one of his best men. 
And we're not going to read the details, but the narrative basically says Joab is a loyal commander. He follows David's orders. He sends Uriah and some other men to the front lines. He puts them in an exposed position in battle, and then he pulls the rest of the troops back. And Uriah is killed along with some other men. All so David can cover up what he's done. Here's how the chapter ends, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, or he sent for her to come to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And David has gotten away with it all, right? Uriah's killed in battle. The king gives his wife a few weeks to mourn. Then he brings her to his palace and he does what any good king should do. He wants to take care of all the widows in his kingdom. And so he uh, takes her as his wife. And then they announce a few months later that she's pregnant. She has the son. Nobody really does the exact math. And just like that, David has covered everything up. Nobody is ever going to find out. Now, most of us know that's not how the story ends. David does get caught. Uh, The story wouldn't be in the Bible if that's where it ended. But before we read the rest, let me be really clear for a second about what this story is about, because many of us have actually read this story or heard this story before. Maybe you've heard sermons on it before. Here's the moral of the story. Don't go out on your rooftop at night. No, that's not the moral of the story. Um, And it's not, here's four ways. I'm not going to conclude the sermon with, like, here's four ways to resist temptation and lust in your life. And the lesson is definitely not one of the greatest people in the Old Testament was actually a terrible, you know, horrible sinner. And don't ever forget that you're probably also a terrible, horrible sinner as well. That's not really what this story is about. It's not about David's lust. It's not even really about his adultery. It's not about his weaknesses or his faults. It's not about the fact that David stumbles from time to time that David has a little bad in his life that sometimes manifests itself in little ways and sometimes manifests itself in really big ways. As if we all need to be reminded, we also have weaknesses and we also sometimes give into temptations and we also sometimes stumble in little big ways and sometimes really big ways. We already know that about ourselves. And if you read the stories of David's life, we already know that about David. The question is not, do we ever stumble like this? The question is, what do we do when we stumble? It's not, do we ever screw up? It's, what do we do and how do we respond when we do screw up? And just like David, we have these two options. When we screw up, when we, when we give in to some sort of weakness, when we do something that's pretty bad, We can confess and come clean. We can be honest about it. That was really bad. Or we can conceal it. Try to control the damage. And so many times in our lives, I think we do the same thing that David did. We think it's better 
to keep trying to conceal, to keep trying to control the consequences. We think we can control the collateral damage. We think we can control exactly who's going to find this out and make sure no one ever finds it out. And that's exactly what David does. And that's why I highlighted that one verb that shows up over and over and over and over. It's the word shalak in Hebrew. It means to send. It's a verb of power. It's a verb of managing things. It's a verb of control. When David finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant, he sends word to Joab, send me Uriah. And Joab sends Uriah to David. And then David sends Uriah home with a gift. He's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. And when that doesn't work, David sends Uriah into battle. He sends Joab a letter sealing Uriah's fate. And then when Uriah's killed and everything's covered up, David sends for Bathsheba so that he can marry her and finish the whole thing. And all of the sending It's like David is managing and he's manipulating. He's trying to stay in control. He's trying to escape the consequences. And when he finally thinks he's gotten away with it, he's kept it hidden from everyone. The story says this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Or literally in Hebrew, that last phrase is, it was evil or ugly. In the eyes of Yahweh. God saw it all. He didn't keep it hidden from God. And God just called it for what it was. That was evil. Like that, was, that wasn't bad, David. Like that, that turned into ugly. Really fast. I mean, displeased, I think, is a little bit soft of the translation. It's almost like disgusted. Like, man, David, this has gotten ugly and rotten. And after all of David's manipulating and managing and controlling and sending, look at the next verse. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. Apparently, Nathan is a friend of David's, and Nathan has God's eyes. He has God's vision. He sees what David has done. And so he comes to David and I'll just summarize here. He tells David this story about this rich man who has all of these sheep. And then there's a poor man who just has one sheep. And he says, the rich man goes and he steals the one sheep from the poor man who only had that one sheep. What do you think about that, David? And David says, that's horrible. The man who did that should be put to death. And then, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil or ugly in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. See, God basically lets David know, look, what you've done, David, it's going to have huge consequences. And notice, it's not just about his initial adultery with Bathsheba. It's almost like God is saying, look, if you had just come clean then, 
If you had just confessed, if you had just been honest about what you did at that point, I mean, there would have been some fallout. And there would have been some consequences to deal with. And that was bad. Let's not gloss over it. What you did there was bad. But then you went and you covered it up. And you kept trying to cover and you kept trying to conceal and you kept trying to, to, to not let anyone find out and you abused your power and you controlled and you avoided the kind. When you did that, David, you made it so much worse. David, God basically says to him here through Nathan, what you've done, and I'm guessing it's not just about this one thing, but that this fulfills a pattern of behavior in David's life. What you've done here, it's created a disaster. It's going to come back to bite you. When you live that way, there's consequences. And so the division and the, and the deceit and the violence and the conflict that you've, you've done, it's going to echo back into your family for the rest of your life. And what God said would happen did actually happen. David's family life from here on out is a disaster. Uh, the son that is born to Bathsheba dies. David's firstborn son from another wife, his name is Amnon. Uh, one day he lusts after his own sister and decides that he has to have her. Where do you think he learned that behavior? Amnon ends up raping his sister. David finds out he does nothing about it. It's almost as if David has lost all of his moral authority to do anything. And as a result, one of his other sons, Absalom, is so angry about what Amnon has done and that David has done nothing about it that Absalom decides his only option is to murder his brother. Where do you think he learned that from? Absalom ends up eventually leading a rebellion against David. He sleeps with David's concubines in front of the entire kingdom. And then eventually Absalom is killed. And then two other sons of David, Solomon and Adonijah, when David gets older, they begin to fight over who's going to become king after David dies. And Solomon kills Adonijah. You see, the rest of David's life, it's a mess. He loses his sons. He loses his family. He loses his kingdom for a while. He loses the respect of his people. He loses his reputation. His house is forever divided. And I think if David could stand here with all of us today, I think he would look at every single one of us and he would say, look, the thing with Bathsheba, oh, it was bad. I gave into a temptation and it was bad, but my biggest regret was thinking I could cover it up. I could conceal it. I, that I could escape and control the consequences. And I think if David were here today, he would look every single one of us in the eye and he would say, look, if you've screwed up, if you've done something stupid, just come clean. Just be honest about it. Just own it, right? We all have bad in our lives, whether it's small or large. Don't let the bad become ugly. Whatever it is, lying, cheating, you know, pride, anger, lust, a, 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 an addiction or a habit that you're ashamed or you're embarrassed about, right? It doesn't really matter. Just confess it. Come clean. 
deal with it. Do you know how you confess? Three things real quick. You start by confessing to yourself. That's just saying to myself, like, okay, I screwed up. (laughs) That was bad. It's, it's not glossing over it. It's not saying, well, actually, it wasn't that bad. Like, compared to what other people do, it's not. It's just like, no, no, no. It's just owning it and saying to yourself, no, no, no. I'm going to take this seriously. I screwed up. I need to deal with it. So you confess to yourself. Then you confess to God. You, you go to God and you say, God, I screwed up. Here's what I did. And, and I know there's some consequences that I'm going to have to deal with. Um, but I need to just start with you and acknowledge that I didn't live the way that you called me to live and and it was dumb. So I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? You confess to yourself, you confess to God, but then this might be the hardest. You confess to someone else, out loud, another person. I mean, certainly if if you've hurt someone else, or maybe you lied to them, then you need to confess that to them, but but a lot of us, most of the time, we just need a Nathan in our lives. We, we need someone else. Maybe it's a, a friend. It could be a spouse. It could be a pastor. It could be a mentor. It could be somebody we trust. We just need someone else that we can go to and be honest and say, oh, I got to tell you, I screwed up. I, I did something stupid. Or, or I have this, this thing that is a weakness and I keep giving into it and I just... I want to hide it and I want to cover it up. Everything in me right now wants no one to know about this, but I need to talk to you about it and I need to tell you and I need your help. And that's scary. It's really hard to confess like that to someone else because I think if I tell someone else about my deepest weaknesses and the dark bad in my life, like, oh, I don't want them to see that. They're going to lose so much respect for me. They're not going to look at me the same way they used to look at me, right? And David says, no, 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 guess what? They will actually respect you more because you're coming clean and you're confessing and you're being honest about faults and weaknesses they already know that you have, Right? The longer you hide it, the longer you cover it up, the longer you conceal, the uglier it's going to get. It's like a disease. You keep ignoring it, it will kill you. So here's the question. What do you need to confess or come clean about? Do you need to confess or come clean about something? And I mean, the answer is probably yes, right? We all do. We all have bad in our lives. We all have weaknesses and faults. We all have junk in our hearts and in our lives. The question is not, do we have junk? It's, what do you do with the junk? Let me pray for us. God, this is uh, a tough story to read. Um, Because we're sort of staring this ugliness that David had in his life in the face. But it also brings up a lot of personal thoughts about our own hearts and our own lives and our own junk and our own skeletons. And so I pray that you would give us the courage um, to do whatever you're calling us to do. And if we need to confess or come clean or just deal with something in our lives that we've been putting off, I pray that you would help us to do that. This in your name.